Well, uh, to get us started here, uh, I'm excited to inform you, all of you, that uh, Gabe Anzalini has finally decided to respond to the call of God to do ministry here at Calvary Chapel. And uh, <laughs> he, uh, he's going to be joining the pastoral team uh, here at Calvary uh, to serve the church with an, an emphasis in biblical counseling and equipping and, and uh, yeah, it's going to be great. Um, you know, he has already been serving here at the church uh, some 20 hours a week, as many of you know and you've benefited from, uh, just loving people, discipling, counseling, and uh, yeah, and what uh, I so appreciate about Gabe is uh, all the things that I love to do, uh, but don't have the time to do it, uh, Gabe is going to come alongside and help me and the rest of the staff love on Calvary Chapel. And uh, so I'm super glad that he's coming on. And um, so I'm going to have Gabe come up. And because he loves to stand in front of people. He loves attention. And if I could get the elders to get up here too. All right. Is there room for us? I'm always afraid to back up up here. Well, can we pray for you? All right. Yeah. Why don't you guys pray and I'll close. And yeah. Well, Father, we are so thankful, um, Lord, that you have uh, seen fit to uh, call Gabe into this role, this, this ministry, Lord, along, uh, alongside his, his bride and his family, Lord. And um, I don't think anyone is surprised, Lord, because uh, he's already been doing it, Lord. And we just pray that um, as he steps in in a, a more um, just defined role, Lord Jesus, that you would just use him. Use the giftings that you have placed in him for your glory, Lord. We just pray your protection over him and his family, uh, Lord, because we have an enemy who, who hates us and, and wants to come against us, Lord. But we just pray your protection over uh, their hearts and their minds, Lord, and um, their, their marriage, their family. Um, as they step into ministry, Lord, we just pray that you would uh, just use them for your glory in Jesus' name. Lord, we're just so grateful for Gabe. I agree with my brother Roger here, Lord, but I also ask for your protection over him, Lord. Um, pray that you would uh, protect his ministry efforts, Lord, protect his family, and, um, and just his spirit, Lord, physically, spiritually, and emotionally, Lord. Just continue to equip him and um, grant him mercy and grace, Father. And Father God, we just have recognized Gabe for so long as being a great servant among our fellowship here and, and outside this church. And Lord, we just thank you that he is answering the call to, to do more here and um, that you've given him a, a burden to uh, bear one another's burdens and to proclaim liberty to captives and uh, to be your instrument to heal the brokenhearted. And we just pray that as he does counseling and serving, that you would uh, direct his steps by your word. Thank you, Lord. Lord God, I thank you for my brother, and I just thank you for the, the calling that you've placed on his life. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, as this transition takes place, uh, where he's just more of a, a forefront, uh, Father, the thing that he's already been doing, uh, which is equipping the saints and loving on people and giving wise counsel, I thank you for the, the knowledge that you've stored up in him. I thank you for the bride that you have given him that is so much the counterpart uh, with him. Uh, being able to do this, I pray over the whole Anzalini family, uh, as well as Gabe, just for your protection, Father, not just from the attacks of the enemy, but also through the refining trials that take place, uh, Father, that uh, that we can't control. But we thank you that you're so faithful to see us through those things. And so we just pray for your favor uh, on Gabe, and I'm just so, so uh, blessed to get to minister with my brother. Well, Father, as you know, Gabe has for a long time now loved the body serve them, encourage them. Uh, and the same for me. He's been my counselor, my friend, uh, faithful to correct me when, I'm, when I've stepped too far one way or the other, even rebuked me, Lord, which I'm thankful for. And, uh, and I know the body is going to get a taste of that as well. And uh, it's necessary. It's good. So, Lord, I pray that you would continue to equip him, to fill him with your spirit, and uh, Lord, make him useful for your glory here, or rather continue. So we thank you, Lord. We love you, and we're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I hugged you earlier. Okay. All right. Well, what else? Oh, yeah. So last week, um, 
I recommended a book to you, and uh, I screwed that up really bad. So I gave you the right author, wrong title. So I, I gave you the title to another great book by another good author. Uh, R.C. Sproul is the one that wrote The Holiness of God. Uh, A.W. Tozer uh, wrote The Knowledge of the Holy. That's the book I was trying to recommend to you. I actually recommend both to you. Uh, so Knowledge of the Holy from Tozer and uh, The Holiness of God from Sproul. Uh, Sproul's read is not as light as Tozer's, but I think, well, they, they come at just two different angles. So, sound good? Okay. Your brains are frozen this morning. So, yeah. What else? Also, you know that uh, Dan Rodriguez, uh, who has served on our security team for a long time, and Jared Kuykendall, they're both in Ecuador. Uh, you know that there's been some, some political excitement in Ecuador. Our boys are in a safe zone. They're fine. But Dan uh, decided to get pneumonia, so he's in the hospital. Uh, but he assured me that he'd be out tomorrow. Now, Dan is not, uh, he withholds information when it comes to his health. So he might be in there for another few weeks. Uh, but we're going to pray that he's out tomorrow and that he's doing well and, and doing the ministry that God has uh, called him to there. So uh, I think that's it, other than uh, Ron Music is is doing okay. He's suffering from a lot of fatigue, but he's home and growing stronger. So we want to continue to pray for him as well. So, and we'll pray for all of that in just a minute. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, you're probably there already, but you can't see anything. Uh, We're in Matthew 23. What an exciting chapter this is. The Pharisees will get an earful from Jesus for sure. It's quite a long chapter. I want to get through all of it today because I don't want to dwell here for very long. So uh, you're going to have to keep it down out there, okay? Except Steve's not here today. He's the guy that shouts out from the back, but just makes it kind of fun. All right, so in the chapter here, it's divided into three sections. Uh, Jesus begins by instructing the multitudes uh, and his disciples regarding the Pharisees' dangers associated with them. Then he declares a number of woes uh, to the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus gets very serious uh, with these guys. And then finally, there's uh, a lamentation of sorts uh, at the end regarding Jerusalem, the people. So why don't you stand and uh, for the reading of God's word. <coughs> it's a long chapter. If you need to sit down, it's okay. Uh, nobody will judge you, at least I won't. I won't be offended if you sit. Matthew 23. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers." But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ. And you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called teacher, For one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, 
he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides, you who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside... They're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will have come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem! the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. But you were unwilling. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your perspective on hypocrisy and lawlessness and false motives. And uh, just pray, Lord, that you would, uh, even though the the message, the word was especially about the Pharisees and the scribes, Lord, you have something to say to us. Because deep down, many of us have the heart of a Pharisee. And so I pray that by your word, your spirit, Lord, you would convict and purge those things out of our lives. Lord, we pray that you would continue to be with Ron Music. Lord, we We just ask that you would strengthen his body, that his fatigue would diminish, Lord, and he would um, just be back on his feet and doing his thing, loving his bride and serving the body. Lord, we pray for uh, Dan and Jared. We thank you that they're not in immediate danger to all that's going on. We pray that you would continue to keep them safe. And Lord, we pray that you would minister to the health of Dan's body, that uh, the pneumonia would clear up quickly, and Lord, that he could be back serving. Lord, we love you. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'll try to remember to shut my microphone off when I blow my nose. If I fail to do that, it's too bad. So, all right. It's a pretty good, yeah. <coughs> all right. Well, fun chapter, huh? Let's get into it and uh, see where Jesus takes us. So verse one through three again, then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. We love those kinds of people, don't we? They say and do not do. All right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that Jesus, it seems that in many of his interactions with the Pharisees, with the scribes, the Sadducees, he's not what anybody expected, right? He's just so unusual. You remember in chapter 22, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they, they came together and they thought that they could get Jesus to, you know, take uh, a side, okay, a side that would create some kind of division either between him and the Romans or Jesus and the people, you know, with the whole issue of taxes. 
But he didn't take any sides, right? He didn't take any sides. He just squashed their plans. The Pharisees thought that Jesus was trying to stir people to rebellion against the religious establishment, but he wasn't. He wasn't, okay? He certainly brought a revolution, but it wasn't so much, you know, against a particular body of human authority as much as it was for the kingdom of God. His revolution was against the kingdom and power of Satan and against sin, but he was preaching the good news of the kingdom. His, his heart there was not to get involved in this particular uh, part of the government politically or this part of the government religiously. What he was there to do was to call his people out of darkness and to call them into the light. And you know, that's the amazing thing about the gospel. It doesn't matter what religious or political environment there is, the gospel can do that, right? It can do it in Russia, it can do it in China, it can do it in, in Iran, it can do it here, okay? And that's what Jesus was doing. He went into the midst of all of this religious and political chaos, and he almost he ignored tons of it, right? He didn't take sides, he didn't too much divide against them, he was just there to call people to the kingdom, to repentance and faith, to walk in truth and love, and it was that in itself, right? That caused a stink, didn't it? But Jesus wasn't there for the stink. He wasn't there to cause trouble, right? It just caused trouble what he did. But that wasn't his intention. He was there to lead people back to himself. Yeah. So Jesus' instruction here, it's not like your typical rebel. So he, he, he begins by recognizing the authority uh, of what has essentially been ordained by God. What's that? The authority of the Pharisees. He recognizes it. That's, we don't like that, do we? We don't like it. Yeah. He says that the scribes and the Pharisees sat, as it were, in the seat of Moses. And Moses was Israel's first prophet. He was their lawgiver. He was their judge. Okay? And they were sitting there. Now, for Israel, the ultimate earthly authority that was established by God was actually religious authority. Israel was to be a theocracy. It was to be governed by the law of God and the, the nation was to be led by her prophets. And it was the scribes and the Pharisees that held that position in Israel. It was their duty to teach the scriptures and to help people understand what God's will was. Now, they were terrible at it, weren't they? They were terrible at it. And their example, their motives, it was wrong. But they held the position of, of, that God ordained for authority over Israel. And so Jesus doesn't counsel them to rebel against them, okay? That would be a call to rebel against the ordination of God. Jesus commands them to observe and do what the Pharisees teach. Now, when you hear something like that, uh, where does your mind immediately go? Exceptions, right? Exceptions. It's just like when we get to Romans 13 and, and uh, Paul says all... Uh, all governing authority has been ordained by God, so therefore you should obey the government. And your mind immediately goes to what? Exceptions. That's right. What about, what if, hey, did you consider this? Yes, I've considered all of it. Uh, I, I know of all the exceptions. Uh, the exceptions do exist, but that's not really where Jesus is going here, okay? It wasn't like the Pharisees were like constantly telling the people to do evil things, Right? Okay, they, the Pharisees got a lot wrong when it came to, you know, the interpretation of the law of Moses and how it was that God's people were to practice their faith, but they weren't going around commanding the Jews to just do outright evil things. So Jesus says to obey them, but he says, do not do according to their works, for they say and they do not do. And then, of course, much of the chapter is about what they do, uh, which Jesus says, I don't want you doing. They were teachers of the law, but they did not obey the law. Jesus called them out in uh, John 7, 19, saying, did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. That was a slam, wasn't it? You're the teachers of the law. You, you wear all the clothing. You're recognized by all the people, but you don't even keep the law. None of you keeps it. Yeah. And so for being teachers of the word and not being doers of the word, he says greater condemnation is upon them, okay? But this is also true uh, to a lesser degree for those who hear the word and do not do the word, okay? That is why Jesus tells them to obey, amen? 
Yeah, those who hear the word and rebel cannot blame their teacher, even if their teacher doesn't obey. Isn't that true? It is true. Um, the word is whose word? It's God's word, okay? And all should obey the truth. And everyone who does not obey the word fails to obey God. If we disobey scripture, who do we disobey? You disobey the Lord. Yeah. So the word is God's word. You're not disobeying the teacher of the word, but the God of the word. So Jesus says, observe and do what is taught from the word. Okay. But be on your guard so that you do not follow their example. He says, verse 4, For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Uh, Adam Clark, an, an, an old dead commentator, says that they were ever so severe to others, but they were indulgent themselves. So what they would do is they would demand with heartless rigor that the, the people obey all things according to the letter. Now, of course, we know not just the law of God, but also the traditions of the rabbis. Uh, you guys have I've mentioned the Talmud before. Uh, the Talmud is this huge volume of uh, what, what they consider commentary on the scriptures or the interpretation of the scriptures. If you've read from the Talmud five minutes of uh, rabbinical interpretation of the Bible, you, you wonder what planet they lived on. The, the interpretation of the rabbis of so much of the scripture was bizarre and mystical and just flat out crazy, okay? Um, I don't encourage anybody to spend really any time in the Talmud. It is a train wreck of a commentary on the Bible. And uh, I don't know how it took off or how it was embraced by the people of Israel. Um, how many of you guys have read much of the Talmud? Oh, good. Praise God. Yeah. Uh, I apologize to you in advance if you ever do read some of it. It's just so bad. So that's part of what was being imposed on the people, uh, just this, the tradition of the rabbis. But they would just impose this, just a heartless uh, pressure on the people to just keep the letter of the law, but they had no sympathy you know, for the struggles and the difficulties that the people would have. They would offer no assistance, no encouragement, all the while showing leniency for themselves. Yeah. Now Peter, he revealed something very telling uh, about the law of Moses when he and the apostles and the elders of Jerusalem got together uh, in the book of Acts. Something, the, the, many of the Jews that had come to faith, even among some of the Pharisees uh, in the early part of the church, were demanding that the Gentiles be circumcised and then keep the whole law. And so when that happened, when that was being imposed on the Gentiles, Peter said to them, he said, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Acts 15, verse 10. That neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. You see, history proved that man really, honestly, is just too sinful to meet all the demands of God's holy law. It requires a perfection that man cannot provide. And instead of the Pharisees being honest with the people about their own brokenness and their moral insufficiencies, instead of sympathizing with them and helping them bear the burden, they would harshly enforce the law in public, but in private, they would walk in sin and hypocrisy. It was a sham. It was a sham. They, they, they presented themselves to the public as if they were keeping the law. And they would demand in their pretense that the people keep the law. And then in their hearts and then in their homes, they were just these vile hypocrites. Vile hypocrites. No transparency. He says, but all their works they do to, see, to be seen by men, verse 5 through 7, he says, they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Okay, so really what they were like in Israel, the Pharisees, they were like movie stars. On the big screen, you know, they're amazing, they're wonderful, they're larger than life, but their morals are trash. Their marriages, their families are a mess. 
It was just this sham, and their motives were completely selfish. In John 5.44, Jesus accused them of seeking honor from one another, and they did not seek the honor that comes from the only God. They were in it for the fame and the recognition. Now, Jesus, to demonstrate this, he mentions phylacteries, garments, feasts, synagogues, and the marketplace. So like movie stars, uh, they essentially had their costumes and they had the stages on which they performed. That's what this is all about, okay? Things to be noticed for and places to be put on display for the people to see them and bask in their magnificence. That's what this was about, okay? So Jesus mentions phylacteries, okay? Uh, Still worn by Orthodox Jews today. And uh, if you could see this screen, you could see this Orthodox Jew. Uh, I'm really sorry. If you guys Google uh, uh, Jewish phylacteries, uh, what you'll see is uh, you'll see an Orthodox Jew with a leather box on his forehead that's strapped to him. And then on his left arm, his left hand in his arm, you'll see a black leather strap that goes up his arm. Have you guys ever seen that? If you get images of the Wailing Wall, sometimes you'll see... Uh, Some of the Jews uh, wearing that stuff. Yeah, those are the phylacteries made from leather of a a clean animal, of course. In the box on their forehead were four sections of the law written on parchment. You had Exodus 13.2, Exodus 13.11. Of course, you had Deuteronomy 6.4, which is the Shema. We talked about that last week. And then Deuteronomy 11.13. The same passages were written under the strap of the left hand. Okay, and the rest of that strap that went up the arm. Uh, They believed that God required this of them from a passage in Exodus 13, verse 16, but I think a spiritual interpretation better fits the sense of the passage there. Uh, There's some uh, indications of that in the Proverbs. Now, listen, one could wear, one could display the phylacteries, I believe, with a proper motive, okay, but the Pharisees, what they would do it was, is they would, they would make their phylacteries broad. That is, they would make them gaudy for all to see, okay? Just one piece of the costume. And to be even more impressive, according to Numbers 15, verse 38, the Pharisees would enlarge the borders of their garments, okay? Now, the borders refers to the fringe uh, that uh, was required by the law to be worn on the four corners of their garments, okay? Now, today, they... Uh, have that fringe on the, uh, the corners of their prayer shawl, sometimes a cloak, okay? But see, the Pharisees would exaggerate theirs in, the, in public to appear ultra-pious for all the people to see. You would know when a Pharisee was coming because everything about him was exaggerated. I remember when uh, my wife, uh, she was dancing professionally ballet, and uh, I hadn't yet seen her in full costume, and, uh, and then I went backstage, and her eyelashes were like this long as the sugar plum fairy. And uh, her hair, her makeup, everything was like, whoa. And, uh, and then, after the show, of course, um, she would sit on her throne, and then the little kids could come, and they could meet her and, and, and get a signature. But some of the little girls would come up to that throne, and they would see her close up with those huge eyelashes. Did I say eyebrows? eyelashes and the makeup, and some of the, the girls would freeze. And it just, like, it was just crazy. That's, that's theater, right? That's Hollywood. That's Phariseeism. It was just this big show. They had their costume, but then they also had the stage, or stages on which they would perform. They would display themselves, literally display themselves at feasts, But of course, they would only go to feasts where the host was just as uppity as themselves and was sure to place them where all could see them. It was true also in the synagogues. Uh, Certainly one of their favorite places to go was to the marketplace where the people were just buzzing about. And what they would do is they would stand in the most strategic place where they could be noticed and so that they could also kind of hear the people say, Rabbi, Rabbi. Or they would stand there and kind of harvest the praises of the people as they whispered to one another about how spiritual they were. Now we, 
course, with hindsight and, and what Jesus has given us, we don't have that perspective of the Pharisees, do we? Okay? We know the cat's out of the bag with these guys. But the, the first century Jews, the citizens of Israel, they admired them. I've said before, if, if there was action figures of anything in Israel, it would be of Pharisees. They were the most admired people in that society. It's crazy. Just stand there and, and let the people bask in their glory. Let them lavish verbal adoration on them. Of course, that all happened for a long time until Jesus showed up on the scene. And could you imagine being one of those guys or even the people? And then Jesus publicly would call them out for the hypocrisy and their pride. Just, you guys are a bunch of clowns. He mocked them for mocking true piety. Verse 8 through 10, he says to the people, but you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teacher, for one is your teacher, the Christ. Yeah. Now, as we look at this particular part of what Jesus says, it's important to keep it all in context. Jesus has a religious context in mind, so it's, it doesn't have a universal application. For example, when he says, call no one on earth father, he doesn't mean your biological father. Amen? Or all of you are in violation. Okay? He's talking about a religious figure. A religious figure. Children should still refer to their fathers as father. But in the context of the church, religious leaders should never be called father. Where do your minds go at this moment? <laughs> I can't think of a more blatant, you know, just disobedience of the word of Christ uh, when it comes to the Catholic Church and calling their leaders father. Now, of course, the Catholic Church has bigger things to repent of, like their false gospel, uh, but they've certainly just ignored and dismissed what Jesus has said in this text. Jesus also condemns the titles of rabbi and teacher, okay, which is ketos in the Greek, for as Jesus says, you have one who is your teacher. Now, he doesn't condemn uh, you know, these titles of rabbi, of teacher, because the, the titles themselves aren't evil. But in this particular society, it gave the teacher, it gave the rabbi mastery over others. And it elevated them to a position that made them greater than the people. That's completely contrary to the heart of God and his actual intent for authority. Okay? Jesus, in the text here, he put all believers on the same level. He says, you are all brothers. Of course, it's generic. You're all brothers. You're all sisters. And he alone stands above them as Lord. We're all equals in Christ. He alone is a Lord, is the Lord in the church. There's no hierarchy among us. Of course, there's positions of authority. There are offices in the church, along with gifts and callings. But anything that anybody has was given to them in order to serve others. Amen? For the edification and for the encouragement of the body. Nothing is given to us by God to make us stand above others. That's why Jesus concludes with, but he who is greatest among you shall be your, I know it's not on the screen, but you guys have Bibles, servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So, you know, greatness in the kingdom of God, we've talked about this many times up to this point, it's not found in position or power or in titles and offices. Greatness is measured by service and humility. Peter puts it this way. And to, well, first to uh, the, everybody in, in general, he says, above all things, that sounds important, doesn't it? Have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Everything that has been given to us was given to us for the sake of others. So he says, serve others with it. Even offices in the church, they're according to gifting, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, and they are for the edifying and the equipping of the people. Well, offices have authority, but they do not place anyone above another. We're all brothers and sisters, only Christ is Lord. 
we're all subject to the word of God. We're all accountable to one another. You know, I'm a teacher of the word, but the word doesn't come from me. Any authority that I have comes from the word. My duty, my privilege is to give what has been given, to give as it was given, amen, and as it was intended by God. You know, the pastors, the elders of this church, their job is to protect, to serve, and to nurture the fellowship. The scriptures say to serve as overseers, not as lords, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. They're to be examples to the church. We're all on the same plane. Going back to our text, Jesus provides both instruction and warning. Here he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the presumptuous person in the church who seeks position and power among God's people, they're eventually going to be brought low. I prefer that we get to witness it, uh, but that doesn't always happen. But it has happened a little bit uh, in church history. Now, in the text, being humbled uh, probably equates to being humiliated and disgraced. That's what everyone who, who is presumptuous enough to seek authority and power over God's people, they should look forward to humiliation and disgrace. They should. It's a foolish game. It's, it's driven by wicked motives and covetousness. And all that it does, really, is it seeks to take a position over God's people that only Christ. Amen? We don't like that stuff. Let's stay away from it here at Calvary. But Jesus does say that those who humble themselves, that is, through service, they will be exalted by God. God honors the humble. He grants them grace so that they can serve better. Let's look at the woes to the Pharisee. This is all the fun stuff here. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So as it were, the door to the kingdom, the Pharisees have put their backs to it to like guard it. And then anybody who's trying to enter, they're doing all they can to push them away. They've rejected Christ themselves and they're keeping others from him. I think this is the, very similar to what Jesus says about uh, the millstone award. That if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better for you to have the lower millstone tied around your neck, be drowned in the depths of the sea. Keeping people from the kingdom, it's a dangerous occupation. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. If you've read your Old Testament, you know that God, he highly esteems widows and orphans. He protects them. He commands his people to protect them. He says, whatever you do, do not lay a hand on a widow or an orphan, but protect them, care for them, okay? So we come to this time in the history of God's people, and the Pharisees, the, the leaders, the religious leaders, they're taking advantage of widows. Now, Jesus doesn't provide an example, but he's probably referring to wealthy widows who have no children, they have no family to help them, okay? And so the Pharisees, of course, would swoop in to help. Among other things, they would provide these, these long prayers for their services, but their services were not free. And so they would continue to supposedly help these widows as they deplete their funds until they would be reduced to no assets. You guys, when we look back in history at the Pharisees, many of them were very, very bad men. Very bad men. Who takes advantage of a widow? Oh, don't say TV evangelist. Don't get me started. <laughs> Have you guys received stuff in the mail from TV evangelist? Yeah, I have received a lot of them, and I did respond to one of them with a nasty girl. But, you know, it's, it's if, if you say this prayer, you know, God will grant you health. Uh, if you, uh, you know, draw a bunch of circles on the ground and stand in the circle, it's, it's, it, it, and they give you this Bible verse, which they hope you'll never look up, and a Bible verse from Isaiah that says the Lord stands on the circle. Of, uh, and if you do that, and then you say these prayers... Uh, you will get rich. Um, but they all, every single one of them says, but you must support our ministry. And so if you will, and they don't go, if you would, you know, offer $20, no, it's always like, let's start at $500 because that's the least spiritual thing you could do. And let's go all the way up to like 10 grand and beyond. And so they promise people health and wealth and all this other stuff. They're very convincing 
and a lot of people get taken by these people. Uh, Just as Jesus said to the Pharisees, he would say it to them, greater condemnation is for those people. So yeah, many TV evangelists. There are good people on TV, but there are a lot of bad people. If you want a list, I can give them to you later. Greater condemnation. Greater punishment is reserved for those who know better is the point there. Especially like Pharisees, TV evangelists, and the rest. These men should have been rescuing widows, not robbing them by way of false piety. All dishonest gain. Verse 15, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. You can just imagine these guys' jaws are on the ground as they listen to Jesus. Yeah. So what he's saying is the Pharisees would go out of their way to win one Gentile proselyte, that is essentially a convert, uh, but they would win them to their version of Judaism, to one of the schools of rabbinic Judaism. William Hendrickson provides this comment. He says, it was not the purpose of the Pharisees merely to change a Gentile to a Jew. No, he must become a full-fledged, legalistic, ritualistic, hair-splitting Pharisee, one filled with fanatical zeal for his new salvation by works religion. The, the, the whole goal was not to you know, get someone into the synagogue and to you know, confess the Shema of Israel. They wanted to reproduce themselves as the, the religious nut job that they were. They would make them, as Jesus says, twice the son of hell as themselves. There's no redemption in rabbinical Judaism. It just endangered the convert. Verse 16 and 17, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Verse 18 and 19, and whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Verse 20 and 22, therefore he who swears by the altar, swears by it and by all things on it. And he who swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So what they were doing is, by the way, that they would swear, they would make these oaths, which the law allowed that, okay? Same things that they would prescribe for others, but what they were, others, what they were doing is diminishing God's dwelling place and his altar of sacrifice and worship. They were devaluing what God honored, and they were elevating these things that had no real value. Their, their thinking wasn't simply backward, it was just blasphemous. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 23 and 24, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Wow. So the weightier matters of the law... Uh, the things that you know, mattered most to God, those are the things that were ignored by the Pharisees. They would avoid justice, mercy, and faith. Of course, they certainly wanted you know, justice and mercy for themselves and for those who benefited them, but they would withhold that from the people. Their religion was just purely one of works and legal minutiae, but it was void of faith. Yeah, it's interesting, Galatians chapter 3, verse 12 makes it clear that adherence to the law is not a thing of faith. Paul says no one keeps the law by faith. Isn't that interesting? Faith is just purely trust in God. It's not obedience to the law. Should never be confused for that. But they were substituting faith for obedience when they should have offered both. And then the mention of the gnat and the camel, what he's, those are appropriate for his last comment regarding laws of lesser and greater significance. The gnat is a reference to them tithing and the camel then referring to justice and mercy and, or rather, not keeping justice, mercy, and faith. So this is what Jesus is talking about. The Pharisees would go to great length to strain a gnat out of their wine, not for the same reason that we would, okay? We would do it because why? It's gross. 
That's right. They wouldn't do it for sanitary reasons, but to avoid accidentally consuming that tiny speck of blood in the gnat, which was a violation of the law of Moses. Jews weren't to eat blood. But come on now, okay? But the Pharisees would turn around and they would swallow a camel, as it were. Now, camels also were unclean. The Jews couldn't eat them. If you've ever been around a camel, I wouldn't eat it either, okay? (laughs) But they were doing something that was clearly, they were actually omitting something that was clearly and obviously a violation of the law. I just think it's so interesting. You know, one didn't have to go out of their way to avoid eating a camel, to swallowing a camel, but he would have to go out of his way to strain a gnat, which in red wine is essentially what? Invisible. I mean, gnats are tiny. You lose track of one in your wine, and you're probably not going to know that you swallowed it. But you would go to great lengths to make sure it's not there, but then you would avoid things like, you know, things that were true of God's nature, things that God elevates and highlights in his law, like justice, mercy, and faith. You have to go out of your way to not do those things. It's just crazy the things that the Pharisees would do. Elevate tithing over moral issues, moral virtue. Verse 25 and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, remember they're celebrities, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Somebody sent me a little meme, I think that's what they're called, or a gif or whatever. It says you should eat makeup so that you can be beautiful on the inside too. (laughs) They weren't talking about me. But that's the issue here is is Jesus saying you should eat makeup so that you can be beautiful on the inside. You appear to be what you're not on the inside. If we were to, to take the costume off, it would be a horror show. It would be ugly. They just lacked all virtue. They were fooling others, but Jesus could see right through them. Verse 29 and 30, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That's some ugly stuff. Yeah. In verse 31, Jesus said that they are witnesses against themselves, that they are the sons of those who murdered the prophet. For when Jesus sends his apostles and prophets to preach to the nation of Israel, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, will be the ones who persecute them and then kill others. They were the instruments in Jesus' crucifixion. They're going to murder Stephen, and by their orders, they will persecute Jewish believers throughout their borders, from city to city. They will prove that they are no different than their fathers who had killed the prophets. They're going to recommit, they're going to perpetuate the sins of their father. And for doing that, Jesus says, the evil of their fathers, the collective guilt of bloodshed from Abel, the son of Adam, to the blood of Zechariah, he says, all of it will fall upon that generation of the Jews. Now, Jesus' statement about Abel and Zechariah is a figure of speech that we would say cover to cover. 
regarding the scriptures from cover to cover. In the Hebrew Bible, now you guys, we, you look at how your Bible is arranged from Genesis to Revelation. The Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible is not arranged that way. Of course, Genesis is their first book, but Second Chronicles is the last book in their Bible. Now, they have all of the prophets as well. They're just contained someplace else. The, the Hebrew Bible <coughs> is called the Tanakh. <clears throat> um, and it's just arranged different than ours. And they don't actually have less books. They just have uh, less separation. So First and Second Samuel is just Samuel. I think that's actually a good idea. Why two Samuels? Whatever. But he says, all the guilt of those who murdered the prophets, he's saying from cover to cover in the Old Testament will be imputed to this generation of Pharisees. Imagine, all the guilt of all those murderers being imputed to a small group of men of a single generation. It's crazy. Jesus is essentially saying that all of that guilt will not be forgiven, but it'll just, it'll converge on this generation, be accountable for all that happened. Now, real quick, before we move on, there's actually a discrepancy in the text that maybe some of you noticed it. I think it has to be addressed. Who noticed it? Oh, fun. All right, well, I'll point it out to you, and then we'll, uh, we'll see if we can resolve it. There were two prophets in the Old Testament scriptures named Zechariah. One lived before the Babylonian captivity. Another one lived afterward. The one who lived before the captivity was Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, and the one who lived afterward was Zechariah, son of Berechiah. The Zechariah mentioned by Jesus is actually the son of Jehoiada, the one that was murdered in the temple. It wasn't the son of Berechiah. Unless, like many other people in the Bible, Zechariah's father had two names, or his father, as oftentimes occurs in the Old Testament, was a reference to Zechariah's grandfather, who may have had the name Berechiah. Those are two possible solutions. I actually favor a third I believe that when Matthew actually penned his document, verse 35 simply read like this, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. That's how I think it was originally penned, okay? And this is what I believe happened. I believe that a scribe who was in later years copying Matthew's gospel made an ignorant assumption and wrote in the margin of the scroll, son of Berechiah. So there it sat until the next scribe came along and had to uh, copy a, a new, make a new copy of the book of Matthew. And as he's doing his scribal duties, he saw son of Berechiah in the margin and thought that the previous scribe had actually left it out but wrote it in the margin. So what did he do? Instead of looking to which Zechariah we're talking about, he just wrote son of Berechiah in there. And that's how it was handed down to us today. Okay, so in other words, it wasn't Matthew's error, it was a scribal error that occurred through transmission. Now there's actually a few of those in the Bible, but they're easy to identify typically, just as this one is. Does that make sense? The Bible was written on papyri. They didn't last very long, especially if they were being used. Okay, so a scribe had to copy them frequently. Now, other copies <coughs> of the scriptures, as we found, uh, like of the New Testament, there's, only, there's over 30,000 of them, and they've been stashed in places in libraries. And then we start going through these libraries. Behold, there's a, a manuscript of Matthew or the book of Romans or whatever. <clears throat> so those ones, some of them extremely old, uh, from the second, third century, uh, were preserved. But the ones that were used by the church were continuously being copied. Crazy, huh? Could you imagine sitting down with inkwell and candlelight with hundreds of feet of parchment? I describe a work as, yeah. But anyway, the scribes did a fantastic job. We have the, the, uh, the copies that were copied multiple times that we have today. And then, you know, we discover a manuscript that was from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. We compare it to the ones that we have today, and they are 99.9% exactly the same. I think it's a miracle of history. But anyway, let's come back to our text. If you have questions about 
that scribal error, we can talk about it later. I want to clarify real quick what Jesus means by the word generation in verse 36. He says, surely I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Okay, now in the context, Jesus is talking about the scribes and the Pharisees of that particular generation. There's no place in the text where it would indicate that he's now talking about a different group of people or even including the average person. There are people who include all of the Jews into this. That is a textual error, and I, I think that we should be careful to avoid it. Okay? It's the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who are instrumental in the crucifixion of Christ and the persecution of God's people. Okay? They executed Stephen. They'll sign letters to send Paul to persecute the church. They'll murder James, the half-brother of Jesus, half, half-brother of Jesus and countless others. So Jesus is talking to them. So when do this... When does all this come upon this generation? Some believe that Jesus is referring to 70 AD when the Romans would come and they would destroy Jerusalem and the temple and just murder countless Jews. But understand, that's still 40 years off from where we're at now. And many of the Pharisees that were guilty of doing what Jesus said they would do, they, they died. They skipped all of that, okay? So I don't actually think that Jesus is talking about 70 AD. I think he's talking about hell because Jesus has mentioned that multiple times throughout the woes given to the Pharisees. And understand, what the Romans did in 70 AD is nothing compared to what God is going to do with the wicked in hell. Amen? What happens in 70 AD, as Jesus would say, that may kill the body. But as Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, God will destroy both body and soul in hell. Guys, Jesus is sending woes. This is, this, is, this is heavy stuff. I don't think he's talking about a military invasion. I think it's, it's, it's spiritual. It's spiritual. Divine justice through and through. Okay, let me hurry here. I got to finish the lamentation. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing Now, the Old Testament, as we all know, it's the history of God just constantly reaching out to an obstinate and rebellious people, prophet after prophet, one chastising measure after another, signs and wonders, miracles and victories, blessings and favor, okay? But the leadership of Israel and Judah constantly led the people into rebellion, dismissing the prophets at best and then killing them at worst, But what we see again in history is God, he just continues to pursue them. That's what Christ was all about. Even the the Gentile church, it's our job, Paul says in Romans 11, to provoke the Jew to jealousy so that they would come back to faith. God is constantly reaching out to them. Isaiah 65, 2 and 3, which Paul quotes in Romans 11, says this. He says, I have stretched out my hand all day long to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face. Nothing has changed. God is still doing this. He longs for the repentance. He he longs for fellowship with the nation of Israel. But they, at this time, were unwilling. They chose other than what God willed. He wanted, but they were unwilling, and the consequences are grave. He says, see, your house has left you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the desolate house has been interpreted a few different ways. Some believe that it's a reference to Jerusalem. It could refer to the temple. It could refer also to the house of David and his dynasty, which the Jews were just longing for. I have my understanding of this. As we see Jesus in in his ministry for three and a half years, he was calling the Jews to become citizens of the kingdom through repentance and faith. And while they too wanted the kingdom, they wanted nothing to do with the king who was Christ. So the rejection of the king at this juncture in history, it meant for them no king in Jerusalem. It meant an empty throne of David, no salvation, no legitimate place of worship, and there was no blessing uh, from the covenants of God. I believe the house has everything to do with the kingdom, the Davidic dynasty. It meant that Israel would be on their own, desolate. 
okay, until they wanted what God willed. They would have no king, they would have no savior, no redeemer, until they declared to Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, the, the passage there, Jesus' statement implies that the door to the Jews is still left open by God and that they one day will be restored. And they will. The prophets said they would. Paul said they would, Romans 11. They are going one day to hail the coming of Christ as their savior. And it's gonna be completely radical. Paul says, when they finally do that, it will be like the nation of Israel was resurrected from the dead. It will be crazy. And when they do, we will enjoy Christ's earthly kingdom together, minus that generation of Pharisees. All right, go ahead and stand up. I went over my time. My Sunday school teachers are going to give me a piece of their mind. I didn't want to dwell on that chapter forever because eschatology is next, and people are asking me all the time, when are we going to get to eschatology? When are we going to talk about the last things of earth history? Chapter 24 is next, and we'll camp there for a while, okay? Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for, uh, as we look back to Matthew uh, 5, 6, and 7, the the edicts of the kingdom, the the virtues of the kingdom, just the very opposite of what we see displayed in the Pharisees. We pray for your grace, Lord, that we we would aspire to those things, to humility, to service, to justice and mercy and faithfulness. Lord, guard us from the heart of a Pharisee where we would seek after position and honor among men. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.